it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, June 16th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show. Welcome into the program, everyone. We are glad you are here. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, every single weekday, we have a podcast that's free after the show ends each day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. All of the information pertaining to all of that available at GuyBensonShow.com. That's GuyBensonShow.com. On the podcast side, you can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Here is what we've got on tap for you Today, coming up later this hour, Bill Malugin, one of our Fox News national correspondents, he's going to join the show with the latest on the border and the border crisis. And there is news breaking out all over the place on that front. I hope we can get all of it in with him, even in a long segment with Bill Malugin. That's coming up this hour. In the next hour, we will have the latest on COVID, vaccines, monkeypox with Dr. Manny Alvarez. Looking forward to that about an hour from now. Peter Ducey will also join us in our middle hour from the White House, one of our Fox News White House correspondents. He had a very interesting series of questions back and forth with Corrine Jean-Pierre at the White House earlier. He pressed her on inflation, on gas prices, on drilling, and let's just say she did not, I don't think, handle it terribly well, which may not come as a surprise given her work product on this front so far. In her new role, we'll see what Peter thinks about that, what he gleaned, if anything, from her answers. And I watched the whole thing earlier. It was painful. It was painful. You kind of want her to do better. And in fairness to her, there's very little that she has to work with. They're kind of hanging her out to dry every day with these lame messaging talking points that she then has to regurgitate. And she made another attempt today, not a terribly successful one. In my estimation, Peter Ducey will reflect on all of that. We'll get his thoughts. Plus, in our final hour, Susan Lee of the Fox Business Network, she's going to weigh in on all of those matters and more. What do these rate increases mean for you? Big market sell-off today, what does that look like? Mortgage rates going way up, what does that mean for the housing market? We will ask Susan Lee straight ahead on today's show. I'd like to begin by reading to you from a letter, an open letter that was sent to pro-life pregnancy centers all across the country by a radical terrorist group calling itself Jane's Revenge. Now, I'm bringing this to you because I think this is an issue that is getting vastly undercovered. I've mentioned it a few different times in the context of the media downplaying, for example, the doxing of Supreme Court justices and their home addresses by leftists, which the White House has still not condemned. The assassination plot against one of those justices just within the last week or so 
that we have not heard directly from the president on at all. As I pointed out, the day after that arrest and the attempted murder charges against this person who came across the country with an arsenal to kill Justice Kavanaugh, the New York Times buried it on the 20th page of the newspaper, and the D.C.-centric morning shows on Sunday morning on all the networks ignored it completely, not a mention, with the exception, of course, of Fox News Sunday. Against that same backdrop is this, a series of attacks meant to terrorize, explicitly meant to terrorize, not just vandalism, but firebombing and arson against clinics and organizations that are set up to help women choose not to have abortions, to bring their pregnancies to term and to have those babies. They offer resources and support and Baby formula, for example. They help these women choose life. And these truly insane pro-abortion zealots are burning down those operations. And they're spray painting threats all over buildings. The slogan seems to be, if abortion is not safe, neither are you. And let me just say this before I proceed and read from this chilling letter. I'm pro-life. I make no bones about that. I know some pro-lifers think that I'm too moderate on certain elements of it. I'm comfortable with that. I understand everyone has their own views. But in the scheme of things, I lean in the pro-life direction. I am pragmatic, incrementalist. That's a separate conversation for another day. I would imagine many of you listening to me right now are also pro-life, or at least somewhere on the pro-life spectrum when it comes to abortion. Where we say, okay, a woman's bodily autonomy matters. That is a significant question of her rights. There's also the question of another human being's rights. And when those rights come into play and the right not to have that life ended. That's the crux of the question. That's how I look at it as a human rights issue, as a pro-lifer. But there are also people listening to this show who listen regularly, maybe even every single day, who would say that they're pro-choice. I have many friends and relatives who are pro-choice. We can agree on some things, disagree on others. I like to try to have respectful conversations, maybe persuade people a little bit using reason, using science on this issue. But I do try to draw a distinction between pro-choice people and pro-abortion radicals. Because I I think even most pro-choice people in this country are in favor of some restrictions, some limitations on abortion, and are very much in favor of women having resources if they want to have a baby and choose something other than abortion. They are not in favor. They are not pro-abortion. Unfortunately, as a matter of public policy, the Democratic Party has effectively become pro-abortion based on the policies that they oppose and the bills that they've introduced and voted for. It is stomach-turning what 98% of congressional Democrats, for example, support on this issue. It is horrifying to me. It is far beyond, in my book, pro-choice. And this takes it to another level. Terrorists targeting pro-life centers with violence and threats Because people working at those centers are providing care to women that might not result in abortion, that might result in a live 
born baby. You have to be pretty sick to get to this level. And yet it is happening over and over again in the last few weeks. These places being targeted and terrorized on purpose, and it's getting almost no coverage at all. And I know even I get sick of making the point, but it has to be made. If it were Justice Sotomayor that had been targeted by a right winger and her address published on the Internet by the Proud Boys, an assassin showed up and was deterred by armed security, that would be the number one story in the country. I mean, a lot of the networks wall-to-wall with January 6th, right, threats to democracy, threats to our system. This falls under that category for sure. And it's been buried. Almost no one is covering this stuff. The Kavanaugh stuff was gone in a flash. There was a Fox News story today interviewing some of his neighbors who were very unhappy with these protesters, agitators, harassers showing up regularly at his house to intimidate him and his family. He does not live in a right-wing neighborhood, but his progressive neighbors do not like what they're seeing. And one of them was quoted saying, yes, someone came to assassinate him, and that story went away almost immediately. Yeah, would not be the case if the reverse ideological scenario had been the case. I think anyone with a shred of intellectual honesty can admit that. Similarly, and I made this point, if you had anti-abortion fringe elements firebombing abortion clinics regularly, committing vandalism, issuing letters like the one I'm about to read, that would be a huge national story. And the mainstream pro-life movement in the Republican Party would be made to answer, answer for it every single day in the press. Instead, we're getting muted response or total silence in terms of this being a national story. And the only explanation is fundamental, incurable bias. Because the narrative is domestic terrorism and political violence is a right-wing phenomenon in this country. And they trot out their studies that show this. And what the studies do pretty explicitly is discount left-wing violence as left-wing violence. They put that in some other category. So it's right-wing violence is right-wing violence. Terrible. Left-wing violence, let's not really talk about that. Let's call it something else. And when you bury example after example and wish it away or close your eyes to it or downplay it or very quickly do like a quick perfunctory thing where you say, oh, that's bad, and you move on, that is part of the structural imbalance that explains why media credibility is in the toilet, which, frankly, is where it should be. They've earned it. All right, so here's this letter from Jane's Revenge, and who knows who these people are? I hope that there are folks in federal law enforcement working around the clock to find them. They are engaged in criminal activity and domestic terrorism, period. That's what they're doing. I don't know how centralized the group is or they have splinter cells. They're trying to make it sound like they're everywhere. But what's undeniable is they are doing these things. So the letter begins, and this is directed at the pro-life Crisis pregnancy centers, you have seen that we are real and that we are not merely pushing empty words. As we said, we are not one group but many. 
You have seen us in Madison, Wisconsin, Fort Collins, Colorado. They go down this whole list. Massachusetts, Washington, Iowa, Washington again, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, New York, Florida, another Washington state, Massachusetts, Texas, Oregon, three in Oregon. They're listing their attacks. They're proud of them. Among others, they say. And we work in countless locations invisibly. You've read the communiques from various cells. You've seen the proliferating messages in graffiti and elsewhere. You know that we are serious. They had some deadline. You have to stop operating or we're going to target you. Well, quote, your 30 days expired yesterday. We offered an honorable way out. You have walked away. Now the leash is off. And we will make it as hard as possible for your campaign of oppression to continue, which is, I mean, just the the Orwellian nature with these people framing themselves as anti-oppressor and anti-violence. <laughs> we have demonstrated in the past month how easy and fun it is to attack. We are versatile. We are mercurial. We answer to no one but ourselves. We promise to take increasingly drastic measures against oppressive infrastructures. Rest assured that we will. And those measures may not come in the form of something so easily cleaned up as fire and graffiti. This is just a direct threat of escalating violence. Translation, by the way. Your pointless attempts to control others and make life more difficult will not be met passively. Eventually, your insurance companies and your financial backers will realize you are a bad investment. From here forward, any anti-choice group, again, this is a targeting of people who are trying to enable the choice of life. But that's called anti-choice by people who only want one outcome, which is abortion. From here forward, any anti-choice group who closes their doors and stops operating will no longer be a target. In other words, put yourself out of business and we won't terrorize you. That's the ultimatum. But until you do, they write, it's open season and we know where your operations are. The infrastructure of the enslavers will not survive. We will never stop, never back down, never slow down, never retreat. Through attacking, we find joy courage and strip the veneer of impenetrability held by these violent institutions. Then they encourage other like-minded people to attack and launch various arson incidents and fire bombings, etc. themselves. You are already one of us, they say. Everyone with the urge to paint, to burn, to cut, to jam, now is the time. Go forth and manifest the things you wish to see. Stay safe. <laughs> Amazing. Stay safe and practice your cur- cursive, which is a reference to the graffiti. And they sign it Jane's Revenge. So this is obviously very overwrought, over the top. I don't know if this is a huge network, but this is at least some group of people carrying out and or inspiring acts of terrorism to try to shut down pregnancy centers that don't offer abortions and try to help women not get abortions. This is a huge story. This is an outrage. I've heard nothing about what the Justice Department is doing. I've heard nothing, to my knowledge, from the Biden administration. 
I've seen virtually nothing from Capitol Hill on this outside of a few Republicans. And the media, forget it. This is happening right now in the United States of America. It is completely unacceptable, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, unless you are drastically, radically extreme on abortion, every single person should be able to condemn this. And yet it's sort of being treated like it's nothing at all. Might that change if someone dies? Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Which brings us to the silence and the crickets on the harassment and intimidation of judges. Some Republicans in the Senate writing a letter to the attorney general demanding more answers, some answers. We'll get to that as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Thursday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Talked about how there's actually a federal law against going to the house of a judge to intimidate them, which is what these left-wingers are doing now regularly the conservative Supreme Court justices. The White House won't condemn it. They've had multiple opportunities to do so. They won't. But the law is on the books. So today, Senators Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley, Republicans of Kentucky and Iowa, respectively, sent a letter to Merrick Garland, the attorney general, saying basically, hey, what the hell? Why aren't you prosecuting? What's the movement here? What are you doing? Is this law a law that you're going to apply or not? It's a good question. It's an urgent question because they cite correctly the toxic and dangerous climate that we're living in right now. Meanwhile, I was talking about the narrative and sort of how only certain acts of violence are treated as important and other acts of political violence are forgotten and memory hold. Here's Congresswoman Jackie Spire, a Democrat, just the other day. She was attacked in the 70s. Here's what she said on the House floor. Cut 31. I believe I'm the only member of this house that is a victim of gun violence. My body is riddled with bullets. It's the five-year anniversary of Steve Scalise almost getting murdered, along with other Republicans on that baseball field. Down the memory hole, treated as sort of a minor event by the media and forgotten even by members of Congress. Amazing. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is free every day. And with us now, Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News, based out of L.A., but he spends a lot of time at the border, of course. Bill, welcome back to the show. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me. 
I would like to set up our conversation about the border crisis. And honestly, I don't even know where to begin because there's so much to get to this week and today. So let's start here. It's a flashback soundbite. April of 2021, President Biden, who was sitting at the time for an interview with NBC News, he doesn't really do interviews anymore, but he did at the time. Craig Melvin asked him about the border crisis. This was more than a year ago, April 2021. And here is how the president responded. Listen to cut 23. In April alone, Mr. President, 170,000 people, migrants, apprehended at the border. It's a 20-year record. There are 22,000 unaccompanied children in our country right now. That's a, that, that's a record. That sounds to most folks like a crisis. Well, look, it's way down now. We've now gotten control. Way down. We've now gotten control. That was after the March numbers in 2021, which were roughly 172,000 encounters at the border. Biden said it's way down. He's downplaying this notion that it was a crisis. And, quote, we've now gotten control. Okay. Fast forward to yesterday, where we got our first look at the May of 2022 numbers. Biden said that 172,000 was under control more than a year ago. What were the numbers last month, Bill? I believe it was 239,416, which is the highest number in DHS history, breaking the record, which was set last month in April, which was 234,000, which broke the record for March, which was 221,000. So the last three months in a row have all been record-breaking months, and uh, May being the highest at nearly 240,000, which uh, I'm glad you were playing those old sound bites because you remember Kamala Harris said this time last year that, quote, extreme progress was being made at the border as well, and the administration's own numbers reflect that the opposite is true down here. Yeah, they had 172,000 apprehensions last March. Biden said, great progress, we've got it under control, and now the record was shattered last month, almost 240,000 apprehensions. It's, I know we do these segments basically monthly, Bill, and we go through these numbers, and it's like sometimes we're banging our forehead against a brick wall because it seems like the people in charge genuinely do not care about any of this. They don't want to talk about it. They're rarely asked about it. It just keeps going in these communities, and the communities are feeling it. I mean, this deep blue Democratic border district just flipped red for the first time in like, you know, 100 years. And maybe that will start to get people's attention because Hispanic communities at the border are tired of what they're seeing. And yet in Washington, D.C., it's just sort of a total lack of urgency, if not an endorsement of what's happening at the border. Put that number into more perspective, 240,000 in May of 2022 alone, what does that bring the total up to in the fiscal year or in the Biden presidency? Because these numbers add up. Yeah, since October 1st, there have now been more than 1.5 million illegal crossings. So that's the beginning of fiscal year 2022, October 1st, October through May, more than 1.5 million. So just to put that in perspective, that's bigger than the populations of Boston and Seattle combined together. That's also a 65% increase over the same time in fiscal year 2021, uh, which was about 930,000 at the time. So 
65% increase. Which was a record, year. right? It was, it yeah, was already it was, a record. Exactly. It was a record-setting year, and we are now 65% higher than that record-setting year at that point in time. As we explain whenever we run through the numbers, the 240-some-odd thousand illegal immigrants who were detained at the southern border last month alone, that number does not include any of the gotaways. And there are two categories of gotaways, known gotaways, where our people detect folks coming across the border but don't have the wherewithal the manpower, the resources to go get them, but they're at least detected on sensors or they're seen, but they escape into the country. Those are known gotaways. Those are tabulated. Unknown gotaways are impossible to tabulate. People who sneak in totally undetected, we can't really qualify or quantify how many of those exist. But sticking with what we can, the known gotaways, that number is not included in the monthly totals. I see on Twitter you've been talking to some of your sources. What's the estimate on known gotaways last month, just last month? Just last month there were more than 50,000, and since October there have been more than 440,000. So you do the math on that. That's about 55,000 a month since October. And when you combine it with the known gotaways from fiscal year 2021, which was about 390,000, Uh, Since the beginning of fiscal year 2021, we have now had more than 800,000 known gotaways at our southern border, more than 800,000. And that's while the administration is claiming they have, quote, operational control of the border. And I think if you go back even a little bit further, right, you're you're getting close to a million here. I mean, it's just an extraordinary number, 50,000 plus a month. That's a sold out Yankee Stadium. That is a capacity crowd at Yankee Stadium every single month of just known gotaways entering the country. Some unknown number of unknown gotaways on top of that. And then you have the people who were actually stopped and captured. Many of them are just processed and released into the country, Bill. What do the numbers look like on that month to month? So in May, uh, according to a DHS court filing we just got today, uh, they released more than 95,000 illegal immigrants into the country just in May alone. Um, pretty pretty staggering numbers. So I think it's safe to say that between those that were released by U.S. officials, plus the known gotaways, plus the unknown gotaways, it's at least 150,000 people in one month who entered the country. And those who were released, they are pending court dates in the future. We know the numbers disputed the exact percentage, but a large percentage of those people never show up for their court dates. They will they will insist and they have over and over again that the border secure. They have operational control. As Biden said more than a year ago, we've gotten control. We do not have open borders. If you have one hundred and fifty thousand people entering the country illegally and being released or just escaping into the American interior on a monthly basis, effectively, that is just open borders. I don't know what else to call that, Bill. Yeah, and, and that you're exactly right. And again, it, it highlights that, you know, Secretary Mayorkas just testified to Congress that they have operational control of the border. Both the numbers do not reflect that. As you mentioned, 
hundreds of thousands of people coming across every month. You can't have 55,000 gotaways every single month and claim to have control of the border. As you mentioned, that is Yankee Stadium filled up every night. 800,000 since fiscal year 2021. I mean, and it's a statistical certainty that there are going to be hardcore criminals mixed in with that, possibly people on the terrorist database, because the gotaways are the people who do not want to be caught. They're not giving themselves up for whatever reason. They do not want to turn themselves in and be caught by U.S. law enforcement, so they're willing to go far out of the way to get out of the way sometimes. And that's a major concern when we have all these, you know, you and I have talked about it till we're blue in the face, but when you have all these family units and big groups coming across, it sucks Border Patrol units off the front lines, and they are not out there to patrol. And one of the things I remember, too, is that remember when President Biden held that press conference right at the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, he said as part of that that press conference, we need to secure the border. It was one of the few times he addressed the border. He said, you know, we need to redouble down and secure the border. Ever since he made those comments, the numbers have shot up to the highest in U.S. history over and over and over. They've done absolutely nothing to secure the border. It's only gotten significantly worse. Just a few days ago, Bill, the border czar from this administration, the vice president, Kamala Harris, she was prattling on about root causes again. This is one of the only things that they can talk about. It was some public-private partnership for funding to address root causes in a handful of countries known as the Northern Triangle. This is sort of the veneer that they put on. This is what they do to play act, that they're trying to do something about the border crisis. Oh, we're going to tackle the root causes in these countries. Well, I saw a Washington Post reporter who today revealed that of the numbers in the month of May, which we've just gone through, huge numbers, only 21% of those encounters were from the root causes countries. So 80%, four out of five of these encounters at the border, not counting, as we mentioned, the gotaways, 80% of them are from other places. I mean, it, it, it seems just imbecilic and insulting to keep focusing on root causes like that's meaningful at all. You can't address root causes in 150-plus countries. Exactly right. And the critics will tell you that the root cause of the border crisis is the administration itself because of all the pull factors, the fact that migrants know if they just get here, they will likely be released into the country. That is the biggest draw for them right now. Under President Trump, they knew he was hardcore you know, border security, building the wall, separating families, remain in Mexico, agreements with third-party countries, and the numbers dropped to historic lows for a reason. As soon as Biden took office, really before he took office, when he was doing the debates, we all remember what he said. You know, we need to surge the border. People need to have a chance to request asylum. We need to surge the border. And then lo and behold, as soon as he takes office, these numbers start shooting up like a rocket ship over and over and over. And you're exactly right. It initially started off as predominantly those Northern Triangle countries, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Now it's expanded to basically everywhere on the globe, more than 130 different countries. We get Chinese people out here sometimes, countries in Africa I'd never even heard of before. I had to Google, like Mauritania, Eritrea. I saw today in this Washington Post story, there's been a big jump in migrants from Turkey, India, and Russia, among other places. Like, this is where people are coming. They're paying huge money to the drug cartels in Mexico who control this. $100 million a week plus they're making on human trafficking alone. It's a booming business for them. They come to the southern border and they come in. That's what's happening. 
over and over again. And a lot of these people know, based on the Biden administration announced policy that's being challenged in court, they aren't going to get deported. I mean, even if they get convicted of additional crimes in various categories, Mayorkas has said they don't want to deport them. That's not reason enough to deport people. Certainly not just being here illegally. You can come here illegally, come into the country, get convicted of DUI or assault, and you still don't get deported. That is the policy. That is the root cause of all of it. And on and on it goes. And, I mean, this will only be stopped when there's a change in leadership. I mean, that's unfortunately the reality here because the people running the show right now not only don't care about this, they seem to want this. They seem to be in yeah. favor of this. I don't know what any other explanation could be. Bill, on that front, I do want to ask you, this is related, and you had some uh, original reporting on this just a few days ago. Going back to the whole whipping smear against some of those Border Patrol officers last year with the Haitian migrants coming across the river, and there was just misinformation that spread like wildfire that they were whipping these illegal immigrants while they were on their horses whipping them. And the president embraced the smear. He repeated the lie. He promised that they would be punished for what they did. He called it outrageous. And then they were just sitting there in purgatory for like nine months. The investigation very quickly showed that it was a lie. That did not happen. There were reins that they were using to control their horses. They were not whipping anyone. The photographer who took the images that spread the misinformation, he said there was no whipping. Months and months later, they leaked out that these agents were not going to be criminally prosecuted or charged, which should have been obvious. They did not commit any crime. But then you learn this week that it looks like they're going to try on some level to get these guys on something, some sort of administrative infraction or something along those lines. You had the president prejudicing the investigation before it even started, declaring them guilty of something before any facts came in vowing that they would be punished. And wouldn't you know it, DHS, many months later, looks like they're going to try to find some sort of excuse to keep the president's promise. Number one, what can you tell us about what this might look like, what what these allegations are, what the agents might be able uh, to to do about it? And is there any sense that there could be actual justice here for these guys because they've been smeared repeatedly and it seems like now the bureaucracy is trying to codify that smear in some way in order to appease the president's political rhetoric yeah from what i'm hearing from my sources it sounds like these guys are going to get railroaded so what i'm hearing is it's going to involve a few of these horseback agents and that the cbp opr which stands for office of professional responsibility uh, is preparing to hand down discipline slash punishment to several of these horseback agents for administrative violations. What that means, we don't know yet. We don't know what they're going to be accused of. We, As you mentioned, we know they were cleared criminally, but it sounds like CBP, DHS is going to hit them on administrative violations. I'm told the agents are in the process of being notified And this is going to happen any day now, and that the agents will have a chance to respond. Uh, CBP will come to them with proposals for discipline. Then the agents have two options. They can either accept the discipline or they can fight it. And the Border Patrol Union says they are going to defend these agents vigorously throughout this process. We're just waiting for the shoe to drop to find out 
what kind of discipline they're proposing and what yeah what are they dreamed of yeah what are these alleged violations that they've come up with because we've all seen the video we've all seen the clips they were simply doing their jobs i hope they fight back very hard on this this is politicized that i mean it reeks of politics the president made his judgment before there was any investigation now they're just backfilling that's what this looks like to me And you have an administration more interested in punishing border agents who are already demoralized than punishing illegal immigrants or stopping them. And it is just absolutely backwards. And I'm generally a pretty moderate person on immigration, but they are radicalizing me into a hawk because this is just madness. Bill Malugin is one of the few reporters nationally covering this on a regular basis down at the border for Fox News. Bill, we always appreciate it. Frustrating as it may be. Pleasure to join you guys. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, a callback to our opening monologue this hour. Speaker Pelosi was just asked about the left-wing terrorism against pro-life pregnancy centers. Would she condemn the terrorist acts? She gave a long answer about her strong support for abortion calling herself very Catholic, did not address at all the violence, the firebombing, the arson, did not even come close to pretending to address the question. And then she concluded with cut 40 here. And I believe in every woman's right to make her own decisions. And and there are questions on another subject because I'm not going to be talking about that anymore. Not going to be talking about that anymore. Any other questions on something else? No condemnation, shrugging off violence, effectively, arguably endorsing it. It shouldn't be hard to say I'm pro-choice, but I'm against this. She didn't do that. Absolutely disgraceful. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge every single day, including bonus Benson on the weekends, which we, of course, recommend. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we enter this middle hour. The Dow way down today. Down 741 points at the close as people start to grapple with what happened yesterday with the Fed announcement. And widespread fears about inflation plus recession looming. The Dow ending at 29,927, so Dow below 30,000 for the first time in a long time. We did it, Joe. Susan Lee will react in the next hour from Fox Business Network. We will have her here. First, though, we get to Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor and senior health analyst here at the network. Doctor, good to have you back. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well. I am curious about your thoughts on monkeypox. I guess some people are pushing to have the disease renamed. We'll get to that a little bit later in the hour. Uh, but whatever you want to call it, the CDC has put out new guidance on monkeypox. There's something of an outbreak in New York. How are you thinking about this virus? How concerned should people be? I've been pretty chill about it so far, but... Obviously, a lot of people are on edge. 
Well, listen, what I say is be aware, but not panicky. Uh, this is a, a disease that is endemic in some countries around the world. It just so happened to be that now these cases are popping up. Uh, there's about 72 cases in the United States. Uh, about 18 states have reported positivity. But if you look at the way that it's spreading, it seems to be spreading um, almost like a sexually transmitted disease. Um, and uh, uh, the description that is, has been given to us doctors by the CDC to look out for monkey pots uh, uh, is uh, rashes in the mouth and the genitals. Uh, and this is a sort of a virus that you really get when you, uh, you know, when you touch a, a, a lesion. Uh, and it's not transmittable through air or saliva or things like that. So, so it's very hard to catch. It's very hard to see in the United States. And now, yes, statistically, the cases have increased. But again, you're talking about 72 cases, and I think that doctors right are now aware. Yeah, uh, and you just have to be very careful in about you know the way that you are behaving sometimes. Especially and and what are the symptoms? It, right. So, you, like, someone has these bumps or these red lesions, what, all over their body? They've got some sort of a, a fever or flu-like symptoms. What What are the telltale signs of this? Well, aside from the rashes now being reported in the U.S. cases and in the mouth and, and genitals, and genitals, you're looking at fever, you're looking at lymph nodes, lymph nodes that are inflamed, uh, especially under your under your arm or in your groin. Uh, so, you know, lymph node swelling, fever, malaise. And, of course, the typical lesions that you see in, in, in a lot of websites. If you think that you might be exposed, because you've got hypochondriacs who think that they've exposed to, you know, they've been exposed to everything, they have everything. But if someone realistically thinks, okay, I've got maybe some of these symptoms, then what? What are the treatments? What should they do? No, they, they go see a, a doctor, hopefully uh, uh, you know, they get assessed. Uh, there's a there's a blood test uh, that identifies, but also a lot clinically people know. But there's a blood test that is readily available to identify this through a lab, and there's antivirals that that people get. You know, this is not a type of a disease that that you will see a high mortality at all. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's some. You know, if, if it was a case of a, a person with an immunocompromised system and they happen to catch this virus, that's a different story, like with any virus. But, but for the most part, is is treatable. Uh, you can make the diagnosis and then you recover. Let's move to COVID-19. Cases have spiked in a lot of places, at least relatively speaking. Deaths, fortunately, even with the lagging indicator have not, which is not to say that deaths are gone from COVID, but it does seem more like an endemic situation right now. Some people are disrupting their summer plans because of this. You've got people, of course, once they're sick, isolating. What is your read on the national scenario right now with maybe a little bit of the news pop that Dr. Fauci has tested positive, you know, people buzzing about that? What do you think of this? What should people know? Well, listen, I think COVID uh, is now in an endemic phase. Uh, uh, however, the amount of uh, Americans that have vaccinated themselves, um, even with a booster, is highly, highly, uh, high, uh, very high. And we know the protection that all these vaccines have given uh, patients that, uh, to prevent uh, hospitalizations and death. If you look at positivity rates right now, you know, we harbor in the tri-state area between 6 percent, 7 percent positivity rate. But the admission rate is very low. The death rates are very, very, very low. So it's a, it's a kind of a chronic endemic disease in the populace. 
Um, and uh, but I don't think it's affecting, you know, certainly in hospitals, there's no surge in admissions, in ICUs, in ventilator use, nothing like that. Nothing like that. That doesn't mean you don't have to be careful, of course, if you have chronic conditions, if you have hypertension, if you're significantly overweight, if you're over 65, if you have immunocompromised systems, then, you know, you always have to think about being vaccinated. I mean, if you have chosen not to get vaccinated for whatever reason, then you have to be cautious about who you hang out with. Let's talk about the vaccines. We've now gotten the FDA recommendation for children six months and older that age group, infants to five-year-olds, to go get this COVID vaccine. They had not been eligible previously. Now they are going to be. I know a lot of parents are very eager to get their kids vaxxed. Others are not. And, for example, in the state of Florida, I know the Florida health officials there are recommending against most young children getting these COVID vaccines, saying that some of the risks to children that age outweigh the benefits people are Very critical of that. I'm seeing Governor DeSantis and his health team getting attacked for that. I will point out that it's very similar to the policy that countries like Finland and Sweden have landed on based on the data, where their health departments in those Scandinavian countries looked at the information, looked at the available data, and said they are not going to recommend universal vaccination for children in that age group Where do you come down on this, doctor? What is the responsible thing? Uh, Some people are talking about mandatory vaccines uh, because we know some people love mandating things. Uh, I'm I'm definitely against that, but I'm open minded on whether or not younger kids ought to get this. What do you think? Well, uh, you know, if you look at the 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 rationale for the Scandinavian countries and Sweden is a country that I know very well because my wife, you know, is from there and uh, I know the health system there very well. They they have a very pragmatic approach to to vaccination, especially the COVID vaccine. Now, having said that, let's look at the safety record of the vaccine itself for the trials that were done. Uh, the, the the Moderna and the Pfizer trials for children under five. There was really no significant um, uh, side effects from it because the way that they did it, they gave small amounts of the vaccination micrograms divided in multiple doses. So there was not a huge, gigantic vaccine that these kids received, and therefore the side effects were minimal. The efficacy rate, if you follow the three doses, is about 80% efficacious in creating an immunity to even the Omicron uh, variant, which is good. Now, the other flip side is, well, how really do five-year-old kids get when uh, they get exposed to COVID? And what was the death rate uh, of that population? It was, you know, not statistically significant. There were a few deaths, for sure. It was microscopic. well, not necessarily microscopic. Right now, there's 442 cases reported at the end of May with children under the age of five with COVID. So the children do get it, that's for sure. The question is, is it necessary uh, as a mandate? I don't think so. Is it something that should be evaluated between the parents, the pediatrician, and look at the scenario of the child, you know, whether the child has any chronic health conditions again is he asthmatic or she asthmatic and things like that so i think that there's an intelligent conversation to be had um i don't think that the government should be mandating mandating that's not something that i'm for uh these types of vaccines for children under five especially i I think for anyone but especially for the young kids to your point i mean what my microscopic adjective was about the number of deaths 
among young children from COVID over the course of the pandemic. Thank God it's been so low. Parents should talk about it with their doctors, look at the risk factors for the kids, and make decisions that way. I think you and I agree on that. Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor, senior health analyst here at Fox. Thank you, doctor. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Interesting development out of Illinois, and it's interesting just because I'm trying to figure out what took so long. Caterpillar, a famous American company, is leaving the state of Illinois, where it has for a long time had its headquarters, and decamping to Texas, joining other major U.S. companies, weighing hiring and costs as they move away from some of these blue states. This according to the Wall Street Journal. The maker of construction and mining equipment said Tuesday that its existing office in Irving, Texas, a suburb of Dallas, will become the new global headquarters. Caterpillar said that the move from the current base in suburban Chicago will help grow the company and that Caterpillar wasn't getting any special economic or tax breaks to move. And that's the thing. They don't really need them. They just look at their bottom line. They look at the climate, the business climate, the tax climate, the leadership climate in Illinois. Then they look at what they're doing down in Texas. That's an easy call. You don't need special sweeteners or incentives. You just run the math and get out. And look, there is a cost associated with moving and all of that and relocating. But clearly, these guys believe, I think rightly so, that in terms of their longer-term prospects, they are going to have a more prosperous, business-friendly, pro-growth environment in which to flourish in Texas versus Illinois. And we see this over and over again, setting aside all the corruption in Illinois. It's a one-party state. They'll occasionally get a Republican governor who can basically do nothing. It is a state like California, like New York, that punishes success, that goes out of its way to vilify people who are successful, to scapegoat them, to blame them, to soak them. This is the way their rhetoric works. This is the way that they engage in class warfare and they set up and craft their policies. And ultimately, whether it's individuals who have done well for themselves or companies that want to be successful, they cry uncle. They say, "Okay, enough. If we're going to be treated like the enemy, then we're gone. And we're going to go somewhere else that's going to treat us not like the enemy. And you know what might even treat us well, like an American institution and a job creating company. I have a few personal friends who are very successful who have had enough of Illinois and left. In fact, one of our guests who will be on the show next week, author Brad Thor, he's got a new book coming out. I'm almost done with it. It's so good. He finally threw in the towel in Illinois. He was living in Chicago. He started shopping around to various red state governors saying, hey, I want to come. I want to bring my family and my income to your state. Make your pitch. Why should I move to you? And I think he ultimately landed, well, I know he ultimately landed, in Tennessee. That's been years now. And I might ask him about his move out of Chicago, like Caterpillar, if we have time for it when we interview him about his new book. And here's this company heading for the exits as well, and this is part of the slow bleed that is happening in that state which is already awash in red ink. And what they do is they attack the same people 
and try to say, well, we're going to raise taxes on the millionaires and billionaires, and ultimately you run out of people's money, and you chase successful people away, and then what? It's just a broken model, and Illinois has leaned hard into that broken model, and the results speak for themselves. I saw that one of the Democratic senators from that state, Senator Duckworth, she tweeted in reaction to the announcement from Caterpillar saying that she was shocked. Really? Maybe you should get out more, Senator. Talk to actual business owners and people who run large and small businesses in your state. It's been a hostile environment for a very long time. This should not come as a shock. Maybe she has to feign surprise because the Democrats sort of just bury their head in the sand in places like Illinois. Say, we're so great, people are going to stay here. Not really. You look at the population decreases, even in California for the first time ever in the last census. You can only push people so far, and there's a breaking point. Meanwhile, on the other side of this, in addition to Texas, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Yunkinland, Lego has announced that it will invest more than a billion dollars to construct a brand new U.S. manufacturing plant near the capital city of Richmond in Virginia, in Chesterfield County. Yunkin tweeting this week, I'm thrilled to officially welcome Lego Group to Virginia. They will invest over a billion dollars to construct their first manufacturing plant, creating over 1,700 new jobs. We look forward to a successful partnership. And Yunkin's making moves I saw on school choice. Elections really do matter. Elections have consequences. We just reported a few weeks ago that Raytheon is moving its headquarters to Virginia. People are noticing a new day, a new team in charge in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I would hope that voters in Virginia are also paying attention with Virginia getting bluer in recent years. I'd say overall it's a blue state. Not so much last year, obviously, with the Republican sweep in 2021. Hopefully, I guess the idea would be, for Virginia voters to look around and say, oh, you know what? I'm glad that my kid isn't required to wear a mask in school anymore. I'm glad that jobs are coming back to Virginia and big companies are moving here and investing here and creating jobs here. I'm glad that we have a governor who's not just pursuing a totally partisan agenda, but is in fact working across the aisle and figuring out places of agreement and moving things forward and governing in a consensus-oriented way while also not abandoning some of the principles that he ran on. It's not like Yunkin ran as a right-winger and now is selling out. He ran as a center-right conservative who wanted to be cooperative and to find solutions. And that's exactly what he's doing without cutting loose a lot of his core beliefs and the promises that he made to conservatives who turned out in massive numbers to get him elected. And the good news, as we reported just a few days ago, is that people in Virginia do seem to be paying attention. A Roanoke College poll of the Commonwealth found that Joe Biden's job approval rating, just as of a few days ago, was 20 points underwater. The president's job approval rating was in the high 30s, with a clear majority disapproving. Same poll, Governor Yunkin in Virginia was plus 18 on job approval, a majority in favor of what he's doing. As governor, And they've thrown a lot at him in the media and on the Democratic side of things, trying to make him out as another ogre like Ron DeSantis and the rest. And it isn't working because the results are what they are. 
and the results nationally, unfortunately, are what they are, hence the numbers that we're seeing. So it's not just elections. It's not just polls. It's also movement of capital. That's telling the story. The story is quite clear, even if it's shocking to certain people. It shouldn't be. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. Peter Ducey, our White House correspondent here at Fox News, joins me. He tangled with Corrine Jean-Pierre earlier today. We'll talk all about it when we return. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day on demand. And with us now is Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Guy. Hello. I want to talk about some of the issues you were asking about earlier today at the briefing with the press secretary. Before we get to the specifics, just overall... I've been talking a bit about her job performance and her reliance on the binder and sort of reading things that have been written down. It doesn't seem to me like she's really easing into this job a number of weeks in. Have you noticed a change from day one where she had a a few stumbles and struggles? Yeah, I've noticed that she is not relying exclusively on the book uh, anymore and that she's more comfortable with a lot of the stuff that they want to talk about. But at today's briefing, for example, she took questions from a ton of outlets about the president's COVID testing cadence, uh, about baby formula shortages, uh, and about the president's opinion about Mohammed bin Salman, who he's going to meet with in like three weeks. And uh, the, the information, whether it's in the book or not, uh, or in the binder or not, um, if they don't have anything prepped, then we're just not going to get that information. Um, but luckily, today we were able to talk to her about inflation and gas prices, and I think uh, we know more about the president's mindset now. Right. Well, I mean, maybe. I, I watched the whole exchange between you and the press secretary, and I'm not sure that I really came away with all that much new information other than they are really struggling to figure out how to talk about these things. And on that front, Fox reported earlier that White House officials, a few of them went over to Capitol Hill to discuss messaging on the economy with the entire House Democratic Caucus. And there was a report from a Politico journalist saying that the White House economic folks are finishing up that briefing that was earlier. And it's, quote, not what many members were hoping for. No new strategy, no new message. White House team was delayed getting there. Very little time for questions. I mean, if the Democrats aren't satisfied with what they're hearing from the president of their own party, I can't imagine that many Americans who are concerned about these issues are feeling much better, given, frankly, some of the answers, if you can call them that, that you got today to your questions. That's a that's a great point, Guy, because there is a Democrat who says that Joe Biden is doing a great job on the economy. His name is Joe Biden. But a lot of these guys on the Hill uh, nobody wants to, uh, you know, you look at this Fox poll last night. Inflation is the number one issue uh, with 41 percent for midterm voters. That's more than triple the number two issue of guns. And so you've got all these Democrats on the Hill. They 
they need to know for their own political uh, longevity. How are we supposed to make inflation sound better or how high gas prices sound better? What Help us out here. And uh, they don't want to apparently <laughs> uh, say anything until they hear from the White House. And if they're not hearing anything good from the White House, I, I don't know if that's good for anybody. Well, they're not hearing anything good from the White House, which is the point. We, on this show yesterday, fact-checked what the president had said in recent days, which is that the U.S. is in a better place in terms of inflation than the rest of the world, that it's worse everywhere else. We're doing not well, although they keep talking about historic gains and extraordinary progress, but at least we're doing better than everyone else. And we just looked up the data from the Financial Times, which has a very good sort of widget on this, And it's not even close to true. The U.S. is outpacing a lot of the developed world on inflation. And you tick down some of those countries, Germany, Japan, Canada. You had a whole bunch of them at your fingertips. You said, why does the president keep saying that we're doing better in the United States on this metric than other countries when it's not true? And there was just a lot of words in response to that, but no answer, nothing really approaching a substantive answer, trying to defend the false claim. No, there wasn't. But the line from the White House and the president on down, they say the United States is better positioned, like the fundamentals of the U.S. economy. Basically, long term, we have more going for us than all these other countries. That's probably true, but that's not what the president said. And so if you're going to if you're going to try to sugarcoat something, uh, have it be something that's harder to look up than just inflation rates in other countries. And she also said that we were we had uh, I need to check the transcript. But she said something to the effect today in response to my question of, well, uh, we have lower inflation than the rest of the G7. But I'm looking at it. Germany has lower inflation than us. France has lower inflation than us. Canada has lower inflation than us. That's three of the seven. (laughs) So so that's that's when you so we'd be at best in the middle and maybe not even there. Right. I mean, just off the top of your head, based on a quick Google search, you knew that the previous claim from the president was wrong. And you're right. She cited the G7. And as you just noted seconds ago here. That's also wrong. What are they doing? Why are they trying this? I, that's that's a great question. And we're going to the G7 next week. Uh, so maybe we can ask some of our foreign counterparts from the uh, <laughs> right. other countries' capitals' press corps uh, where they think that any of this is coming from. But uh, until, until we're in Germany, uh, we might have to wait for that. Meanwhile, on the issue of gas prices, which is part of the inflation problem, but it has a lot of other factors feeding into it, you were trying to get your arms around what the White House is actually doing here. Because we've seen this letter that the president fired off to oil executives. We saw the comments yesterday from Ms. Jean-Pierre saying that these companies need to be patriotic, whatever that means, and, quote, do the capacity. I'm not sure if that is a technical term in the oil industry, but that is what she was urging the oil industry to do. And you're like, okay, so they are trying to demonize, they're trying to scapegoat, they're demanding things of these private companies. 
What exactly is the idea here? We don't want them to drill, but we want them to increase their capacity on refining. Why not also drill? She responded to that question from you saying, well, we don't need to drill. It's not a supply problem. It's a refining problem. I'm not really sure that's true either. In fact, I'm quite sure that's not true. And the thing that is lost in a lot of this is that these are so they're basically saying the oil companies have enough oil, but and they just need to refine more. The refineries are built just to handle the kind of crude oil that comes from overseas. And we're having a problem with that system right now. I know that there's a lot of reasons for it, but I asked her many different times and in a couple different ways, why not just change the approach and start drilling here? And she said they don't think they need to. And, you know, as they're looking for as they're looking for a way to give voters confidence that prices are going to come down, especially I saw all this inflation led by gas. People have nine thousand dollars less in their savings than last year. And so as they're trying to make people think or convince people that they're not going to be totally cleaned out by November, I don't I don't know how that works. You were also trying to get her to reconcile these competing forces. And we also heard this from the energy secretary who gave an interview saying we want all of this stuff to be done right now by the oil companies. But we were still very much hoping to shut them down five to ten years from now. So do all of this production, quote, do the capacity to quote Jean-Pierre. We need that now for immediate relief. But the medium term to long term goal remains wiping out fossil fuel and completing what the president has called an incredible transition to clean energy. It really does seem like an awfully tough thing to say, hey, industry, be patriots. We want you to do all this stuff right now, even though we've tied your hands behind your back for the last year and a half. And we're insisting that you do this for the country. Also, we very much want to put you out of business pretty soon. You were asking, okay, is the green energy stuff on the back burner? What's the priority here? The answer that she tried to give was, well, we can do both, but it looks like, at least to my eyes and ears, they want to stick with the green energy agenda for the base and for the long term, but they don't really want to talk about what that looks like in the immediate future because of the painful consequences right now, which would be even more toxic for voters if they really lean into it at this moment. And they're trying to walk that line. What do you make of that line walking? No, you're you're absolutely right. And for the reasons that you said, she can't say when I ask if what the priority is long term climate change or short term lowering gas prices, they they are showing that they can't really say that the priority is lower gas prices because this is a president who the activist wing of his party They care the most about climate change. And he said on his first day, every agency, even the education department and the treasury department, needs to think about climate change in every decision that they make. And if they abandon that, that is a betrayal to to the base and to what he said. Uh, Is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? Doesn't matter. But in hindsight, they kind of box themselves in by by going so – so towards climate change uh, when there was always a possibility coming out of a pandemic that we would have these high gas prices. 
Finally, Peter, we were talking earlier on the program today about immigration. The Republican National Committee put out a video, a flashback of the president. He gave an interview. I know he used to do those. He used to give interviews to journalists. He hasn't done one since February the 10th, which aired on Super Bowl Sunday. So think about where you were on the Super Bowl. That is when that last interview aired, the last interview this president has done with a journalist. Jimmy Kimmel, obviously, is not a journalist, but he gave one in the spring of 2021. And one of the topics that came up, it was Craig Melvin of NBC, was the border crisis. And the month prior to that interview, so March of 2021, the border encounter number from CPB was 172,000. And that was seen as very bad, a huge uptick from the previous month, a 71 percent increase. And the border crisis really seemed to be quite acute. That was back last spring. And in response, the president said that his administration had started to get the problem under control. We said we've gotten control of it now. Fast forward to yesterday, the numbers came out for May of 2022, last month, and it was nearly 240,000 encounters at the border, not including all the gotaways, which is, again, just an explosion over last year, and it's yet another record-shattering number. The president said last spring that they had gotten control of the problem. That is demonstrably untrue based on the numbers that continue to get worse. Number one, does the White House have anything to say about this? And number two, do you think maybe the president might get asked about it if he ever deigns to sit down with you, I doubt that, or anyone else for an interview? Uh, They have not had anything to say about it recently. Uh, But I'm sure that we'll hear a ton about it because – The vice president is in charge of the root causes of migration. She is uh, supposed to figure out why people keep heading to the border, not the border specifically, but figure out why they're leaving their home countries. And so I'm sure that uh, we will get something on that very soon. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, very, very soon. Well, and as the stats from last month bear out, only about one out of five people in this record-setting number of encounters and apprehensions In May of 2022, only about one out of five of them were from the, quote unquote, root cause countries that the vice president is focused on. So the other 80 percent, I wonder if they can come up with some sort of story there. Are they going to solve the root causes in 150 plus countries? These are the types of questions that should be put to them all the time. They just don't take very many of them. And you can ask them. And I know that you do ask the tough questions. Then to the binder she goes and reads a couple sentences that have been pre-prepared by someone, and then it's off to the next thing. And I think there's a reason why the president's job approval rating is south of 40%. That's my editorial piece on this. To end the interview with Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent, joining us today after quite an interesting, lengthy back and forth with the press secretary in the briefing room earlier. Peter, we appreciate your time as always. Thanks a lot, Guy. We will step aside and come right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you very much for tuning in. You know what? Let's do a little Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! We were talking earlier with Dr. Manny Alvarez about monkeypox. And you will be relieved to learn that the WHO is renaming monkeypox to combat, quote, racism and stigma. 
why. The monkeys don't speak English. I don't think any monkey is going to get insulted if they overhear us like at the zoo talking about monkeypox and being like, well, hang on a second. That's not fair. Stop stigmatizing me. This is the type of stupidity that we're dealing with, broadly speaking across society, but within the medical establishment as well. Remember, we decided that naming diseases after the place that they were discovered, which is a longstanding practice, from Asia to Africa to Waspy, Connecticut, that was no longer acceptable, particularly when it came to new strains or new variants of COVID. Right. So then we got the Greek alphabet version of everything because we couldn't say the Indian variant or whatever. Now, I guess monkeypox is too offensive to monkeys. So we have to change the name. And I guess they were talking about some acronym instead. I honestly was making this joke about not offending monkeys, but I was like, no, actually, what is the allegation here for real? What is the concern about, quote, stoking racism and stigma per this Axios story? Well, the answer is a group of over 30 international scientists called for the name change last week, writing in a letter that the continued reference to and nomenclature of this virus being African is not only inaccurate, but it is also discriminatory and stigmatizing. I mean, I know that some of this has originated in Africa, some of the cases, but we've also talked on the air about how some of the known cases now in the West seem to have traced back to big gay raves in Europe. And what does Africa have to do with monkeys? I guess there are some monkeys there, but I don't think, oh, this is an Africa problem. I guess some people's brains do immediately go there. And that seems, I don't know, a little racist to me. If you're going to say, well, we can't refer to this anymore because some people might interpret it a certain way to blame a certain group of people on one continent. The scientists in the letter saying, quote, we believe that no race or skin complexion should be the face of this disease. I agree because that's not accurate. That shouldn't be the case. I also don't see how that has to do with monkeys, which are not a race or skin complexion. There just seems to be a bit of a gap here that they're filling, and it's really weird. Monkeypox is not racist. It might be speciesist, if that's a thing, but that's a very different question. At least that's what it seems like to me. So I look forward with bated breath to the new official non-offensive term for monkeypox, and we will take that under advisement. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. We will talk about the economy, inflation, gas prices, and much more with Susan Lee of the Fox Business Network coming up in our final hour of the Guy Benson Show today. That's straight ahead. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our final hour of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. We are grateful 
that you have tuned in, that you're listening live or on our podcast. All of the information is at GuyBensonShow.com. Ways to listen live, ways to listen back, including that free on-demand podcast every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter. It's also Instagram, same handle, at GuyBensonShow. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Perfect when it's hot outside, a nice, ice-cold, refreshing Finnish Long Drink. It's alcoholic, so 21-plus only, please. Always drink responsibly. They have really expanded big time across the country by popular demand. You can go to thelongdrink.com, type in your zip code, and you can see where it's sold near you. might be coming soon. You can also order online. With us now is Susan Lee of the Fox Business Network, one of their correspondents. And Susan, welcome back to the show. Great to have you. Thank you, Guy. It's 5 p.m. somewhere in the world, so you can, I guess, have a drink at 10 a.m. maybe somewhere? Well, I'm not sure if I'd endorse that. I feel like we (laughs) go with the 5 p.m. hour being our happy hour. That's when I'll allow it. To me, the only real excuse for day drinking is college football tailgates or just tailgating in general for sports. That's number one. And then the occasional, like, long weekend summer barbecue. Those are my exceptions to the rule. Does that sound reasonable to you? Sounds good. That sounds reasonable. I'll even throw in Wimbledon. If you're lucky to be in London Uh like I was a few years ago, you enjoy those pims and strawberries. Delicious. Well, you know what? Now I'm distracted, but I'm going to tell you, a few years ago when we got engaged, I proposed in France, and I was able to get tickets for the French Open the next day. So we went to Roland Garros, and we watched a few matches, and it was a lot of fun, very hot, All I wanted in the stadium was to have a beer and watch the tennis. No one's super famous. I didn't know either of the people competing. I just want to enjoy the sun and the atmosphere and have a beer. They did not sell alcohol at the French Open, and I was outraged. Oh, yeah. that's surprising because across the I channel, know. they do that in stock. Oh, yeah, no. In, no, they're absolutely going to be selling booze in the U.K., They'll definitely be selling booze at the U.S. Open. If I had to guess, knowing my Australian friends and relatives, they probably sell oh, yeah. booze at the Australian Open. But I, I guess the Grand that. Slam exception is the French. Yes, I can confirm that. I'm surprised because obviously there's champagne, wonderful Bordeaux, and yet they decide oh, sure. not to offer tennis fans alcohol. I know. Even if there wasn't beer, like give me a nice cool rosé, give me a finished long drink. I would pay probably through the nose for any of this stuff. But alas, at least when I was there a couple of years ago, it wasn't an option. Susan, let's get back on track here and talk about the economy. Bumpy ride on Wall Street today, reacting to the Fed's sharp rate hike. Talk about the rate hike, what they're trying to do here, and what the implications are for average Americans. Yeah, they're trying to tap back on consumerism. So we were just talking about how much we would pay for that wonderful rosé at the Red Clay on uh, Roland Garros in France. Well, I think the Federal Reserve, what they're trying to do by raising interest rates by the most since 1994 yesterday, 75 basis points higher, is to tamp down on the consumer spend. And hopefully they'll bring down inflation 
from those 40-year highs. But you know, I'm surprised by the market reaction because this is, this is the second Federal Reserve meeting in a row where you had a rally into the actual announcement and the press conference afterwards, and then a rethink the day after, and that's when you're you saw some pretty heavy selling like we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. But I thought the Federal Reserve actually and Jay Powell kind of met the market where it was, meaning they told everybody we're going to raise interest rates to 3.4% by the end of this year. And guess where 10-year Treasury yields are trading at? 3.4%. They said we could raise maybe 50 to 75 the next time, next meeting, next month. We are trying to avoid a recession. We could see a softish landing in the economy. And it all sounded great. So I think there's been a rethink from Wall Street today. Well, I mean, can we trust the credibility, first of all, of the Federal Reserve? Because the first few questions in that press conference afterwards, you heard the journalist saying, well, you promised us 50 basis points last time, but you raised it 75. And so when you're talking about 3.4 percent at the end of this year, could it be higher than that in order to quickly and sharply bring down inflation? Well, they were also wrong about inflation, right, last year. So that goes to the credibility problem. And I can understand why they want to say that they're expecting or shooting for Mm -hmm. a softish landing. I think that's probably the issue here, right? It's much easier said than done, where if you're trying to slow down the economy because it's overheating and inflation's way out of control, what often happens, in fact, Larry Summers was saying more often than not, is even when inflation isn't as bad as it is right now, It's hard to thread the needle and cool off the economy enough to deal with the inflation problem without tipping into recession. And a lot more experts seem to be thinking uh, that tip into recession is looking maybe not inevitable, but a lot more likely. I think that's what's spooking an awful lot of people right now, understandably. Understandably, because it's a tough, tough balancing act. Threading the needle is exactly the type of uh, execution that you're expecting from Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve. And it's not just Larry Summers. You listen to a a lot of Wall Street billionaires, and they've all been echoing the same thing the last few weeks. And the problem is when you get inflation above 5%, you really have to start raising interest rates in a hurry, by the way, and very sharply in the short term to try to bring down inflation. And Larry Summers pointed this out, that there's never really been a quarter where we've seen inflation above 5%, the jobless rate below 4%, and being able to thread that needle to get that fine balance in order to bring the economy back into a softish landing. It's a tough job. And inflation is significantly above that 5% threshold that he mentioned. Meanwhile, relatedly, looking at mortgage rates hitting 5.78%, That's the highest level since 2008, which was a very difficult, turbulent year of upheaval, especially looking at the housing market. The housing market in the last year, two years, three years, especially over the pandemic, has been crazy. I mean, people buying houses for huge amounts of money, bidding wars, waiving contingencies, no homes available for purchase, very low inventory, everything getting snapped up immediately. Is that going to start changing in a hurry because of this new creeping up or maybe not even creeping up, shooting up of mortgage interest rates? Exactly right. If you look at the chart, which I tweeted out earlier this morning, and I'm sure you follow very closely, Guy, but you'll see this uh, sharp sharp rise in mortgage rates, which has been really kind of shocking to the system. You mentioned the 30-year fixed mortgage rate, largest one-week increase 
since 1987. And right now, you're right, it's sitting at the highest since 2008. But it's not just that. I mean, you're seeing this filter in in these forward indicators, like housing starts fell for a third straight month. So you're looking at the lowest housing starts now in a year. Also, the number of homes changing hands, that's now in the negative. It's falling, whereas month over month for the last two years, and as you mentioned, these bidding wars and just this appetite for real estate because with interest rates and mortgage rates at their record lows, people were, were trying to get out there and buy their homes. But now that's reversed, and we've actually seen these deals uh, now fall into the negative. Yep, and it seems like that window where everything was white hot is closing, if not closed, on that whole front. You know, Susan, we were chatting earlier in the show with Peter Ducey, and he was asking a number of questions at the White House today of Karine Jean-Pierre on energy, on drilling, on inflation, on a lot of these topics that we're talking about. And what has struck me in recent days is the upbeat rhetoric coming out of the administration. And I guess they feel like they don't really have much of a choice. They have to spin this stuff. They have to put uh, a positive face on things. But I think you actually run into problems politically when you are so Pollyannish to be totally out of touch with how people are actually feeling, right? We've heard from Jean-Pierre that Americans are well-situated to weather this storm because of the, quote, historic gains that have been made under President Biden. Biden last week saying that we have the fastest growing economy in the world, which isn't true. And the economy in this country actually shrunk in the last quarter. And quarter two estimates have been revised down. I mean, they keep saying this stuff. Oh, we've made extraordinary progress. Well, the Fox News poll that came out yesterday and we're getting more details today, the president's job approval number on the economy is 29 percent with 67 percent disapproving two-thirds and on inflation it's 23 percent versus 71 percent disapproval and you dig further into the poll huge majorities i mean almost unanimously americans are saying my family is being impacted by gas prices food prices etc and it just seems sort of galling and confounding on a political level for people getting up at microphones and trying to speak things into existence that basically everyone in this country knows from personal current experience not to be true and not to be credible. Well, I think they've learned the lessons from the Carter administration. And I was uh, actually doing the comparison of the disapproval ratings on the economy compared for Biden compared to Jimmy Carter. And they're actually even worse for Biden at this point in their administrations. And so very, as you know, I mean, I'm talking to a historian here, a political historian, as you know, it's very hard for a first term president to come back and get a second term when the economy is in recession. You've learned that for Bush one, for Carter, and I think uh, obviously the Biden White House has seen that historical context. And so they're trying to change the narrative in a hurry. And yes, you know, we have uh, a recent survey, actually, Wall Street. I think 75% of Wall Street now predicts that there will be a recession. But I do, I do want to point out, I don't want to talk ourselves into a recession because we haven't seen it yet, yet. As you mentioned, the second quarter GDP numbers are being revised down in a hurry. So we have the Atlanta Fed being the latest, saying that we're going to get zero growth in the springtime. Zero isn't Mm -hmm. negative, but look, I think it's a very dangerous precipice where it could dip dip into negative territory, and we could see two negative quarters of growth in a row, which would be— Yeah, and if we're cheering zero, right, if we're cheering zero, like at least it's not a recession— First of all, the recession could come next year or 24, which is what a lot of people are projecting. But also, 
growth at zero percent is terrible. Not great. It isn't great. But if you dig through, though, and I do point this out because even Jay Powell mentioned this yesterday. And again, I just want to make sure that we just don't talk ourselves into negative growth is that it's still a really strong and hot jobs market. You have two jobs for every applicant on the market and people are still willing to spend. I think we'll get a great consumer read later on today, at least from the perspective of how much Americans are willing to open up their wallets when we have those prime days for Amazon in July, the middle of July, because then you get the Walmart and all the uh, targets and all the other retailers cutting their prices. And we'll see how strong in the strength of those sales. And it'll probably give us a clear indication as to how the rest of this year might play out. Last but not least, on the issue of gas prices, This CNN interview, I've seen it clipped a bunch of places. Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary, was on that network, and she was essentially saying that the administration, we heard this from the White House as well, is demanding that oil companies ramp up their production, that they increase their capacity for refining oil. They want the companies to bring down prices. They're pointing to profits or windfall profits and saying you need to be patriots. We've done everything that we can. It's your turn. The companies are obviously pushing back. The industry is almost scoffing. Like, you got to be kidding me. You demonize us. You attack us. You promise to get rid of us and to move away from fossil fuels. And now you're saying that it's our patriotic duty to do backflips and basically perform magic at the very last minute. So the question was asked of her, how do you reconcile some of that with these stated goals of moving away from fossil fuels, which could put oil companies out of business in five to 10 years, is that still what the objective is? And here's part of the resulting exchange between John Berman and Jennifer Granholm in Cut 29. Five years from now, 10 years from now, are you telling me you want them drilling for more oil? You want the refineries putting out more gasoline in five or 10 years? What we're saying is today we need that supply increased. Of course, in five or ten years, actually in in the immediate, we are also pressing on the accelerator, if you will, to move toward clean energy so that we don't have to be under the thumb of petrodictators like Putin or at the whim of the volatility of fossil fuels. Ultimately, America will be most secure when we can rely Mm -hmm. upon our own clean domestic production of energy. But that's the problem for these companies. Right. So... I think that's the issue there, Susan, where they say, yes, we want all this stuff right now. But, yes, a few years from now, we want to move away from all of these things so that we're not under the thumb of petro dictators like Putin or the whim and volatility of fossil fuels. Actually, fossil fuels are not terribly volatile, especially if we're producing it here at home, which we can, which has nothing to do with Putin or Saudi Arabia. They are hostile to that idea. So I'm seeing these policies and this rhetoric sort of bumping up against each other, and they're having trouble, at least as far as I'm seeing, they're having trouble explaining that in a way that's coherent to me. How do you hear that exchange? I hear that exchange as, I guess, a lack in policy. I mean, why not try to incentivize some of these oil companies to reopen some of those refineries? Now, it's true that we have one million barrels less a day in energy because they did shut down those refineries when during COVID when oil went into the negative, when it basically went negative, which is something we haven't seen ever. That was a historical moment. But I think incentivization is important. Also, back in 2018, before COVID, I looked at a statistic that the U.S. would be responsible and would have that wonderful advantage of being responsible for the 50 percent, half of the new growth in energy supplies over the next decade. Now, I think that 
probably has reversed because of COVID and the shutdown in the refineries. But that's a great position to be in, to be energy independent, to set your own standards and your own prices and to have that extra supply right. and that cushion. And I think we're learning that now. Well, and we were a net exporter finally under Trump. And then that was reversed. And if you want to be energy independent, that is totally attainable for the United States. But we need the people in charge to let that happen, to unleash these resources. We have seen the opposite in a lot of cases under this administration for environmental reasons. And they can defend that, but it's really hard to defend it at a moment like this where people are paying so much money for energy. And they kind of want to make it seem like they feel that pain, even though they are, in my view, causing a lot of that pain. Let's leave it there for now. Pick up the conversation, I'm sure, again very soon. None of this, sadly, is going away. Susan Lee of the Fox Business Network, my guest, here on The Guy Benson Show. Susan, thank you so much. Thank you, Guy. Have a wonderful day. You too. It's The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, which continues right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Welcome back. President Biden hosted a Pride Month-related event at the White House, and he stumbled a little bit over the acronym. People were sharing this online, Cut24. I'm also proud to have signed an executive order on my first day in office to combat discrimination against LGBTQLI, excuse me, plus America. Uh, I think he forgot A and 2. And I'm actually going to defend Biden here. The acronym is unwieldy. It was unwieldy at LGBT. Then you had the Q and then 2IA+. I don't know what a lot of that even means. And it keeps growing. And it almost seems like a flex or a show-off thing to do at this point. Someone who can nail it every single time in the exact right order. It's like someone who can rattle off multiple decimal places for pi beyond 3.14. It's like, ooh, aren't you special? It's too much. It's confusing. Can't we just say not straight and call it a day? I'd be fine with that. Not straight Americans. Let's move on. That's my Benson proposal on Pride Month 2022. They'll probably just add five more letters. The Guy Benson Show is back after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. In our first hour today, we interviewed Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News. And there is news on the immigration front, the border crisis, breaking out all over the place this week. We tried to get to as much of it as we could with Bill Malugin. Here's part of that conversation. I would like to set up our conversation about the border crisis. And honestly, I don't even know where to begin because there's so much to get to this week and today. So let's start here. It's a flashback soundbite. April of 2021, President Biden, who was sitting at the time for an interview with NBC News, he doesn't really do interviews anymore, but he did at the time. Craig Melvin asked him about the border crisis. This was more than a year ago, April 2021. And here is how the president responded. Listen to cut 23. In April alone, Mr. President, 170,000 people, migrants, apprehended at the border. It's a 20-year record. There are 22,000 unaccompanied children in our country right now. That's a, that, that's a record. That sounds to most folks like a crisis. Well, look, it's way down now. We've now gotten control. 
way down. We've now gotten control. That was after the March numbers in 2021, which were roughly 172,000 encounters at the border. Biden said it's way down, is downplaying this notion that it was a crisis, and, quote, we've now gotten control. Okay. Fast forward to yesterday, where we got our first look at the May of 2022 numbers. Biden said that 172,000 was under control more than a year ago. What were the numbers last month, Bill? I believe it was 239,416, which is the highest number in DHS history, breaking the record, which was set last month in April, which was 234,000, which broke the record for March, which was 221,000. So the last three months in a row have all been record-breaking months, and uh, May being the highest at nearly 240,000 which uh, I'm glad you were playing those old sound bites because you remember Kamala Harris said this time last year that, quote, extreme progress was being made at the border as well. And the administration's own numbers reflect that the opposite is true down here. Yeah, they had 172,000 apprehensions last March. Biden said, great progress. We've got it under control. And now the record was shattered last month, almost 240,000 apprehensions. It's I know we do these segments basically monthly, Bill, and we go through these numbers and it's like sometimes we're banging our forehead against a brick wall because it seems like the people in charge genuinely do not care about any of this. They don't want to talk about it. They're rarely asked about it. It just keeps going in these communities and the communities are feeling it. I mean, this deep blue Democratic border district just flipped red for the first time in like, you know, a hundred years. And maybe that will start to get people's attention because Hispanic communities at the border are tired of what they're seeing. And yet in Washington, D.C., it's just sort of a total lack of urgency, if not an endorsement of what's happening at the border. Put that number into more perspective, 240,000 in May of 2022 alone, what does that bring the total up to in the fiscal year or in the Biden presidency? Because these numbers add up. Yeah, since October 1st, there have now been more than 1.5 million illegal crossings. So that's the beginning of fiscal year 2022, October 1st, October through May, more than 1.5 million. So just to put that in perspective, that's bigger than the populations of Boston and Seattle combined together. That's also a 65% increase over the same time in fiscal year 2021, uh, which was about 930,000 at the time. So 65% increase. Which was a record, right? It was, it was yeah, already a record. Exactly. It was a record-setting year, and we are now 65% higher than that record-setting year at that point in time. My full discussion with Bill Malugin, our Fox News national correspondent at the border, that's available online at GuyBensonShow.com, along with the free podcast every day on demand, no charge to you, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, a travel package being offered by Disney for an astounding amount of money. Quiet Wyatt is going on a Disney vacation is he shelling out the big bucks for this package? Christine is curious. We'll get to that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on Friday Eve. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free every day. Well, you know that we have at this program a Disney critic, me, and a Disney fanatic, Quiet Wyatt. And Wyatt is going on vacation starting tomorrow to Disney. He'll be out for more than a week. And I had that in mind when I saw this story at Deadline.com. Disney is offering what they're calling a bucket list adventure of a lifetime. And they're capping the guests at 75, priced at roughly $110,000 per person because you need to at least go double occupancy. So we're talking $220,000 for a couple. You get white glove, five-star service with private jets and all these other accommodations to visit all 12 of the company's theme parks around the world, plus other stops at various wonders of the world, like the Taj Mahal, the pyramids, the Eiffel Tower. You also get some behind-the-scenes tours. I would hope so. I would hope there would be some perks for hundred ten grand a head. I didn't realize that there were 12 parks in the world, period. I know that there are two in the United States, I think. A couple in China. They are more than happy to do business with the Chinese Communist Party and then weigh into American politics where they're horrified over certain things. We've talked about that. I think there's one in France, if I recall correctly. And that's all I got. Euro Disney. Plus Disneyland, Disney World, and a couple of the China ones. Wyatt, what am I missing? Um, you said there's only two in America. There's actually four in Florida and two in California. And we're talking parks. So there's different parks. It's not just resorts. So Disney World counts as four places or four parks? Correct. Is MGM, for example, is that one of them? Or Holly- Hollywood Studios? Hollywood Studios now, yeah. That's Disney? That is Disney. Okay, so there are six in America. Yes. And then six elsewhere. Where? Do you know? Shanghai is the newest one. Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Paris. Okay. So then we're up to 10. And then Tokyo Sea, and then there's another studios park in Paris. Okay. So there are the 12. You go to all of those, private jets, all that stuff, plus some of these other wonders of the world, $110,000. It's a huge, big adventure. If, Wyatt, you were a multimillionaire, would you consider doing this as like a bucket list item, a 50th birthday present to yourself, something like that? Or is it just too much to spend on any one trip? So I just want to set the record straight again Okay, that I am a Disney not a fanatic, but a fan. I like going to the park. So this would be something that would entice me because you're going to see all the parks. But again, for the record, I don't even remember the last Disney movie I, I saw. So I'm not like one of those people that runs out and, and you know, goes to see the latest movie. But weren't you talking about moving physically to a Disney community at some point, like living at Disney? 
because it's Disney quality, but it's not – those communities were not <laughs> like a park where Mickey is walking See, around. my fanatic meter is buzzing on this one. It's a little – not quite off the chart, but getting close. Living at Disney for Disney quality, I'm not making fun of it too much. I'm just saying you're a little more than just a fan. I guess, but I'm not like a Disney adult, so we need to just – the record needs to be set. Are on, you sure? Because you're going on vacation to Disney starting tomorrow. Yeah, but I I'm not like I'm not like a crazy like there I didn't the say term crazy. the term Disney adult is like you are dressed up and going to the park like with your cosplay exactly I am not like that I'm not like I mean th- that is great if you like to do that but that is not something that I do when I go to Disney when I go to Disney I don't even this will be the first time I'm even going to the parks some of the parks in like really several years we usually go when we go as a family it's just our secondary home basically because we go there so much and it's it's like a just an escape place so it's not it's not like a um i i'm just i'm not a disney adult just mm, put it to you that way sounding very defensive i think when you get back <laughs> one monday from next monday i'm going to show up at the studio and you'll be on the other side of the glass getting ready and you will be fully in a goofy costume because they're going to hire you when you're down there to go around and because you could be a goofy character at Disney World who also makes balloons for the kids. And it's like, you know, you can make – you do enjoy a side hustle. Now, producer Christine had requested this topic because, A, this was an interesting news hook, hundred and ten grand for the Disney trip around the world or whatever. That's not quite what you're doing next week with your family. This is more a standard DeSantis land Disney trip uh, for – are your parents going to all the siblings or just the siblings? This is just the siblings. Uh huh. So your parents aren't going. This sounds sort of like Disney adults, young Disney adults going to Disney for their Disney vacation. That's just me. That's how I'm interpreting it. But Christine has many questions and she wants to pepper you with said questions. So, curious, Christine, we have some time left here. Have at it. Okay, I have 13 questions. Nope, we're not going to be able to do that. So, let's pick your best ones. Can I just can I just say them all and then he could decide what he wants to answer? I'll just go quickly. No. <sighs> Let's do as many as we can get to, starting with your first question. When did the obsession start? I told if it's not an obsession, uh-huh. it's just I I liked we always went to Disney as a as a child. I always went to Disney and I think I told you this, Christine, that before I was even born, my first Mickey Mouse plush thing was a creamed color plush because it was not I they didn't know who if I was a boy or a girl so I literally had an unsexed Mickey Mouse as my first Mickey Mouse okay so the answer is in the womb okay. next question do you have a separate closet in your apartment just for your Disney clothes no Christine I don't own Disney clothes and if you did but if you did you own, don't own any no, Disney clothes. I don't believe that at all that's a lie has to be. Well, Wyatt, come I want on. to fact check that. Okay. Can, can we clarify what Disney clothes mean? Yeah, like Disney-branded attire. Yes. Yeah. Anything like, you would wear that says Disney on it yes. or has something to do with Disney. Thank you. I, I have like a Walt Disney World shirt. Okay. But not like— Not a separate closet. Not a separate closet and not like, you know, Mickey Mouse and Goofy and Donald all over my shirt. Okay. Next question. Uh, so I assume, is it going to just be too hot for you to wear a sweater vest next week? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 looking like it's going to be in the 90s, so. 
Um, if you had to guess, how many miles have you logged on the monorail? Um, I don't know. I, that's not usually something I, I use as a mode of transportation when I'm there. What? I figured, I figured you always need the hotel on the monorail. I prefer that, but you can't always get that. So, Are it, you staying at one of the on-property locations? Of course. Ah. But, I don't know. But it's not, it's not connected to the monorail. Can I, I just ha- say I'll something? Take a bus. I didn't even put that question on because that was just an, a given guy. Come on. Well, he said, of course. He looked at me like, what a stupid, wasted question. Uh, All right, next one. Who is your favorite character to get a picture with? Like, who do you search for? Again, I I couldn't tell you the last time I got a picture with a character, but obviously I think Mickey Mouse is probably the best. He's he's classic Disney, classic America. So if I could find him, maybe I would take a picture just for you, Christine, and I'll send it to you. Will there... You know, Christine, what, what you can't tell, because we're here in D.C., you're up in New York, whenever you ask him one of these tough questions, he goes straight to a binder. He's got the <laughs> binder, he's got these pre-written answers, and he's just reading them. Although he's reading them better than some other people, hypothetically, would. All right, next question. All right, so if you go with an odd number of people, like you are about to, how do you decide who gets to sit next to each other on a ride? Now, you're saying odd number of people, not odd people. We don't want to be mean to his family and his siblings. Yes? Correct. And so there's only three of them because it's two by two in a lot of these rides. Exactly. So who's the odd man out? Is it Quiet Wyatt or is it you and a giant plushie of Goofy that you have as your companion? I don't know, Christine. That's a tough question. But usually, I mean, to be honest, whenever we do go to these parks, you have to either get fast passes to get on some of these rides because the lines are so long or some of these rides have single rider ones where you have to just sit alone or sit with a rando person. How much is the fast pass? Because it's expensive just to show up to begin with, and then you pay even more to skip the line. Well, now there's a new thing that you do have to pay for, but we're not doing that because it's ridiculous to have to pay to get quicker onto some of these rides. Because it used to just be you would show up to the park early and you would go to the actual ride and they would print out a ticket and it would give you a time to come. And then now they did, they switched it to online where you could do it online. And then now they have another online thing where you have to pay and you can go. So you're, rides you're not going to pay for the extra. I will not pay for the extra. Okay. Christine, one or two more. Just just to clarify, I wouldn't go to Disney without paying for that head of the line. I'm not waiting two hours with screaming kids. And I have a kid just to get on a ride. It's not worth it. Okay. Um, oh, I feel like, Christine, you with your daughter on one of these two-hour-long lines, you would be the one who would have a meltdown. And she'd be trying to get you to calm down and be quiet. You'd be stomping your feet. I don't want to be here anymore. You're like, Mom, there are people around. We're in public. Come on. Uh. All right, um, go ahead. I wish I could say you're wrong, but no, that actually has happened. <laughs> anyway, uh, best favorite country in Epcot. Either Italy or Canada. Canada? Because they have a, a really, really good steakhouse. They do. I've been there. It's delicious. Oh, Wyatt, will a turkey leg be in your future? I don't know. We'll have to see. I, 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 maybe, I, maybe I'll get one. I don't know. All right. Is um, that half your body weight? <laughs> last two questions. Uh, do you 
always buy souvenirs. Can you bring me home a souvenir? I would like Mickey ears. And maybe next time, can I go? That's a lot. Um, <laughs> I don't think I always get a souvenir. Like I said, maybe I'll get a T-shirt when I go, but it's not necessarily a huge deal to do that. Um, and maybe, Christine, maybe we'll have to do the next Guy Benson Show retreat there because no. – I'm, I'm going to veto that. It's very expensive. Although if Christine is so interested in going with you next time, Wyatt, you can do a fact-finding mission this time and just see what the discounts are for seniors. And that could maybe help bring down the cost if you guys were to go in the near future. All right, Christine, I think we're up on a break. We have to end it there because the show's over. But interesting questions. Wyatt, we will miss you for six shows. Oh, boy. So, yes, please come back safely in one piece as soon as possible. Have a great time. And in the meantime, we are back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. We will talk to you all then. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.